Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, January 22nd, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historians Richard White and Louis P. Major discuss Richard White's book, The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, 1865 to 1869. And now, enjoy the podcast. Well, this is exciting, and it's an exciting time to be talking about this era called the Gilded Age. Um, How useful is that term for, not today, although we may talk about that too, but for talking about this this era, right? It's it's Mark Twain who coined it uh, in a badly written novel with with, uh, Dudley Warner to describe the era. So let's talk about that. Let's start with the Gilded Age. Historians dismissed the term for a very long time. Um, because what they wanted to argue, that corruption wasn't that important. Corruption actually is that important. Um, And it's not just the corruption, but that there's a period that begins at the end of the Civil War, which is going to be defined by partisan rivalries, um, weak presidencies, uh, corruption, um, immigration, nativism. Um, I could go on and on. You recognize where this is going. And that's the part which I think has made it so resonant with today. But there's a certain danger to that, too, because we can begin to think it's not history, it's just current events. Right, right. So this notion of the second Gilded Age is something to avoid, in part because we want to honor the pastness of the past, right? And that this era needs to be sort of understood on its own terms. Uh, You know, you, you make a comment in here referring to the era as the age of facial hair, which I kind of in, in, enjoy. Um, so, so let's start with, um, with Grant, um, who's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, he seems always uh, two major biographies of him in the last couple of years. And his reputation seems to move a lot, shifts a lot. Um, it seems to me that, so what's your take on, on Grant? What, what, what do we do with him? You know, I, I'm very sympathetic to Grant, because Grant is somebody who was a genuine hero of the Civil War, um, and he's somebody who overcame a great deal of adversity. Um, but at the same time, I don't think he can really be rehabilitated. He can't be moved out of the ranks of Gilded Age presidents. He was a Gilded Age president. Um, his term in office was scarred by corruption. Um, He had probably the best of intentions towards Reconstruction, but he's very much implicated in his failure. Um, And in the end, he's going to be marred by he has an almost innocent desire to be rich, the kind of desire, the greed that leads to his own downfall, in many ways typifies many Americans in the 1860s, 1870s. His great moments are the Civil War and in dying. I mean, he wrote, one of the things Grant was, was a terrific author. And Grant's memoirs are one of the great works of American literature. And he writes these as he is dying of cancer. I mean, he's a man who at his best can be absolutely heroic, but he's not always at his best. Yeah. 
You say that he didn't really know what to do with his victory in 1872, and I think there's, there may be some, some truth to that. Uh, I, you brought up Reconstruction. You know, we start with the Gilded Age. We're moving back. The, the two overlap in some ways. We should talk something about Reconstruction because um, you make this provocative argument uh, that you say at one point, Reconstruction was not doomed to fail. And I'd like you to sort of elaborate that on, on your take on Reconstruction in this, in this volume. Yeah, I'd argue that there's going to be sort of three moments in American history where there is a kind of unity in what the people in power want. One of them is going to be at the end of the, at the, end of the revolution, despite the quarrels over the Constitution, the second one is going to be at the end of the Civil War, and the third one is going to be at the New Deal. At the end of the Civil War, they have a very clear idea of what they want for the country. It is going to be a free labor republic. It's going to have equal rights, and it's going to have a homogeneous citizenship, which is enforced by the federal government. The Republican Party agrees on that. By and large, it's going to be a quarrel over the means, but they know that the federal government is going to have to do it. The big mistake they make, which comes out of current scholarship, is they begin dismantling the only administrative arm they have to make sure that Reconstruction works, and that's the Army. They dismantle the Army, and the studies that have come out recently show this withdrawal very quickly of U.S. troops so that you can give orders from Washington, D.C., but there is nobody on the ground to enforce those orders. The freedmen are going to be left vulnerable to terror, And terror is what is going to kill Reconstruction. It is essentially a triumph of terrorism. It could have been stopped by military force, but the means of doing it is dismantled, and the soldiers who are left are going to be switched to the West. The place they're needed is in the South. So I think with those kinds of things, it would have been ugly, but it would have been much better than a century of disenfranchisement, which is what's going to follow. But it's dismantled for a reason, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of weariness. There's a certain amount of... You know, 65, the war ends. By 70, 71, 72, the era of Reconstruction has been going on longer than the Civil War itself. There's only so long, it seems, that the, uh, the politics of supporting the freedmen can sustain itself. Does that make sense? That makes sense, but I disagree with it on the yeah. grounds that I talk about Reconstruction in terms of the way historians often do now. We, t- we talk about the greater Reconstruction. It's not just the South, but the West. We don't lose patience in the West. We put the army in the West, and the army continues to fight until they subjugate Indian peoples. That same army, this is what Sheridan argues, why are you ordering the soldiers out to the West? We need them in Texas to protect freedmen and unionists. So we put them in the West, and there they do sustain that effort. They sustain that effort until Indian peoples are subjugated. That same effort could have been, it would have been unpopular, but it could have been in the South. So I think there is a will when it's going to be exercised, but we're exercising it in the Western part of Reconstruction, not the Southern part of Reconstruction. See, but I read you as arguing almost a cause and effect there, that, that there's a withdrawal from the South in order to give attention to the West. And of course, you're one of the great Western historians. So let's talk more about the West. I, I, was, I was really struck by your point about the demographic dominance of Midwesterners. I never realized that. Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Harrison. Uh, You even have statistics in there about the movement of the mean population of the United States further west to some point in Ohio. This is the golden age of the Midwest. Um, Chicago becomes the typical American city. Um, If anybody had an idea of what 
reconstruction is supposed to look like, whether it's in the um, West or in the South, it's the whole country is going to be Springfield. Springfield, Illinois, Lincoln's birthplace is the ideal. You look at the presidents, they're all from the Midwest. You look at American intellectuals, by and large, even if they write in the East, they come from the Midwest. Um, when you look at American politics, it sounds very familiar now. Whoever takes Ohio is going to get the presidency. Um, this is the age in which Midwesterners really become the ideal. William Dean Howells at one point says, the ideal American is going to be a Midwesterner with Eastern finish. And that's really what he's talking about. So this is the age which, again, because now it's become flyover country, this is the age where it really was the heartland. It really was the part where all the big ideas, um, all the new developments seem to be springing out of the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just thinking of something about that. Uh, the story of, of the Indians, the Western Wars, which tend to get a footnote. You, you alluded to it with Sherman and Sheridan. Can you talk more about that, about the sort of conquering of the West in terms of making it available to this growing westward migration? Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the great tragedies of this whole period is there is an effort to conquer Indian peoples, and, in the, and it succeeds. This is the point at which the Western United States, which had been claimed but not possessed by the United States, becomes possessed by the United States. And my argument, which is a quite controversial argument, is that it really didn't have to be that way. There was not a demand for Western lands at the time. I mean, one of the things I argue, we get to 1890, there are more people in New York City, Brooklyn, and Boston than in the entire Western United States minus, Chicago, minus San Francisco. So by and large, it's not that there's this overwhelming demand to go West. This is done when, in fact, that kind of wealth, that kind of force could have been used elsewhere. Am I arguing that eventually Indian peoples would remain totally independent? No. But you would have had a generation or two for which, which they could have adjusted, adapted, and we could have had a different kind of way of bringing them into the United States. But instead, we do it through military force, despite the peace policy, which was never a peace policy. They're brought in by force. You talk about the middle landscape at some point in this book. What, what is that? What's the middle landscape? You quote Hamlin Garland, another, Garland, another of your Midwestern writers. The, the middle landscape is going to be this place which is not urban, but it's not completely rural either. It's a place of small towns. There's going to be a kind of intellectualism that will um, take place in these small towns It'll be a place where people have a community life. They're not isolated. They're not talking. They're not idealizing the frontier. It's going to be a place, a garden landscape. It's going to be that the whole country will be in bloom. Whenever Americans need an example of anything in the 19th century, they go to Springfield, Illinois. They go to Abraham Lincoln. And the middle landscape is going to be what that part of Illinois would look like. It would be thriving farms, independent producers, small businesses, it would not be large cities. It would not be um, wage labor. And this is part of what you call, the, the, the title chapter is Westward, the Course of Reform, yeah. playing on the famous Westward, the Course of Empire. Uh, wh what are some of those reforms that you see germinating in this middle Western landscape? Well, I mean, one of the things, once the Republicans are in power and they can do what they want, because for about 10 years they could do whatever they wanted. And they passed, starting in the Civil War into the early 1870s, 
They passed the Homestead Act. The United States will give away a home to everybody. They passed the Morrill Act for land-grant universities. The United States will educate everybody by using Western lands to um, found universities. The caveat to this, of course, is those lands do not belong to the United States. They first have to be taken from Indian peoples. But still, you use this land to create what they see as this kind of middle landscape, which they see as a free labor republic. These kinds of reforms will take place all over the West. And what they thought they were going to get is what they never get. They thought they're going to get is a place of Abraham Lincoln's, of people who are independent producers, who become independent um, in the sense that they wage labor is going to be a stage of life, not a permanent part of life. That's their ideal. The great irony of the age, of course, is that it is the age of wage labor. By the end of time, it's, by the time it's over, most Americans work for wages outside of farmers and their diminishing. Well, the other story there is mass immigration, right? right? So we can, we can come back uh, and, and talk more about that. Uh, you argue at one point, it's a beautiful sentence, you say urban immigrants were creating the American future. Uh, I love that. Can, can you talk more about that, about this age of immigration, not just the age of reconstruction in the Gilded Age? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, there's many ironies in the age. But the people who most grasp what the United States is going to become are not native-born Americans, not necessarily the people who fought the Civil War, who have a vision which is based on pre-Civil War America. It's going to be immigrants who foresee it. They are going to be wage laborers. They are going to be the people who invent much of American popular culture. They're going to be people who imagine the United States not as a homogeneous Protestant country, but as this eclectic country made up of people from all over the country, all over the world. They're the people who say that you want to be an American. What proves is that you devote yourself to American ideals, not just the fact that your ancestors were born here. So they have the ones of a vision of the United States, which is going to take place in the late 19th and early 20th century. So they're the ones, I think, who really do see the future of the country in the way that the people who fought to create that country couldn't. They're bound by an older set of ideas and will in some ways be deeply disappointed by the country that they have created. And their living conditions are going to contribute to the rise of a sort of early progressive movement, right? Muckraking, uh, Jacob Rees here in New York. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that astonished me, and there's been a lot of work that's been done by economists and by historians, but I started putting it all together, and I don't take credit for it. All I'm doing is simply um, giving you an account of the literature One of the things I wanted to see was, well, did life get better for ordinary people during the 19th century, or did it get worse? And it's really hard to get real wages. It's really hard to get statistics on what they're consuming, standard of living. What we can get pretty good statistics on are some pretty basic things. Did Americans get shorter? Did Americans get taller? Did Americans' lifespan increase? Did Americans' lifespan decrease? Did children stop dying in such numbers at early ages? Was there, in fact, going to be an end for epidemic diseases? And the answer to all of those things is no. By and large, the material conditions of American life in the mid and late 19th century got worse. They will only turn around by the time we get to the early 20th century. And one of the best signs of this would be if somebody from the 19th century could walk into this room, they would think that we had turned into a race of giants, 
They're five foot one, five foot two, five foot three, and that is getting shorter. They are shorter than their revolutionary ancestors. And this is not just because short immigrants were coming in. This is controlled for native-born Americans. So something is taking place here which seems to indicate that by the most basic measures we have, life is getting worse, not better, which allows you to understand why it's an age of such incredible turmoil. I think a lot of people here appreciate how dramatic, though, that statement is, right? Because we like to think of the arc of American history as one of progress, as one of improvement, as this Whiggish kind of vision. You're saying that there's this moment here, not of uh, progress, but of declension. And it's the kind of thing we've had that shock of recognition in the current moment when American lifespans for certain groups are now beginning to decline again. That's not supposed to happen in the United States. But it did happen, at least once before. It happened in the Gilded Age. So the drama of wage labor also leads to this era of massive strikes. We should talk about that. Um, 1886 alone, there are 1,400 strikes. And the battle between capital and labor, I mean, I don't think it's fair for us here to have a conversation about the Gilded Age without mentioning these uh, robber barons, as some of them were called. You have a slightly different take on some of them. So let's talk more about sort of capital versus labor, which is one of the great dynamic conflicts of the era. One of the things, especially when I teach it to my undergraduates, which is the hardest to get across, is people of my generation, certainly people of their generation, even people of my parents' generation, expected that your life is going to be working for others, that your success is going to be on earning a wage. At the end of the Civil War, earning a wage was a denial of independence. It was really a threat to your manhood. The idea that the United States would be a country of wage laborers instead of independent producers seemed to be something which was going to strike at the heart of the republic. The republic could not endure if the independence of its citizens was going to be compromised in this way. They didn't even have language for it, right? The word employer-employee. Yeah, none of that. I mean, boss is only created in the 1830s. This is a kind of concept which is coming on very, very slowly. And so there is a resistance to this, which we think, well, they're fighting for higher wages. Well, higher wages are part of it, but mostly they're fighting for manhood, independence, and control over work. Who got to say what went on in a factory was probably the most single volatile issue in American labor relations in the 19th century. How long you worked, an eight-hour day, whether in fact they could command all of your labor all day, The way that they could dramatically refer to it as wage slavery, what they're talking about is anything which threatens my independence is a threat to my manhood, and a threat to my manhood is going to be a threat to the republic. And it's also going to be, particularly as women enter the workforce, a threat to womanhood, too. So this is an intense cultural battle. It brings out a kind of deep feeling, which it's hard to recreate now. Mostly my students think, oh, they're just negotiating or who gets what. No, they're negotiating over who they are. Right, right. So who wins? We know who wins. <laughs> <laughs> I work for Stanford University, and I earn a wage. Um, <laughs> um, this, this battle between capital and labor. Let, let, let's come back to the agrarian struggles, right? This populist movement that emerges at this time, this, this age of reform. Where, where does that come from, and where would you place that populist movement in the sort of arc of American history? um, Populism is probably the most loaded word in um, the American vocabulary, right? (laughs) It can mean whatever you want it to mean. So what I try to do is back back away from populism a little bit and say, 
Populism is a variant of a much larger movement, which they called anti-monopoly. What they said is that the real danger to the country is monopoly. And they mean something different by monopoly than we do. They mean anybody who has enough power to stop independent producers from succeeding according to their own efforts is a monopolist. So they struggle against monopoly. The populists are a variant of monopoly. The Grangers are a variant of monopoly. The Knights of Labor are a variant of monopoly are anti-monopoly. All of these things come together. We've fixated on the populists for a particular phase which comes up in the 1890s, but really this is a movement that starts in the 1860s and lasts into progressivism. Right, right. Well, I was talking pop, you know, capital P Populist yeah. Party. Uh, and, and they're relatively short-lived. They are short-lived. I mean, the great historian Richard Hofstadter once famously said about third parties that they are like bees. They sting once and then yeah. they die. But those principles of the populist party then get absorbed into one of the, the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the populist platform, they achieve virtually everything. Um, you know, the, the income tax is a populist platform. Populists also wanted immigration restriction because they tend to be also nativists. They got that, too. Um, they want education. They get that kind of education. What they don't get is the nationalization of railroads But what they meant by that is something very close to what we have already. What the populists wanted to do in nationalizing railroads is have something like our interstate highway system. The government owns the roadbeds and private vehicles can go across them. And so if they looked at at the national highway system now, they'd say, yeah, that's what we're talking about. That's what we should have. They want regulation of banking. Most of their reforms were simply not that drastic. Um, But at the time, they seemed to be because the lines had been so clearly drawn. The thing about the 1896 election, which the populists lose, standing back from it, no matter what happened in that election, whether you voted Republican, whether you voted populist and Democrat, or whether you just voted Democrat, you were going to be voting for people who wanted a larger government and more government control. By the 1896 election, that battle was over. There was no other choice. The government was going to be far more powerful in American life. And it didn't matter which party you chose. And that way, they all wanted the same thing. McKinley and Bryan are on the same page. I don't want to put you on the spot, but so my students always want to know about silver versus gold in this era, right? Anybody who studies this era, it's the silver versus gold debates, which all seems sort of arcane. Can you explain them? I mean, in what ways do they matter? Do you really want to hear this? (laughs) Yes, just very quickly. Okay. Because they, too, had to go through this at some point, right? Essentially, with silver and gold, by the time you've reduced it to silver and gold, you've already made it something of superstition. The belief in gold is that it's a belief in two things, which are antithetical. First of all, gold itself has this sort of mystery, and there's a limited amount of it, which means that if you have a gold standard, you cannot have inflation. You will have what is called real money. Also, which is buried in this, who controls gold in the 19th century? The Bank of England, particularly for American conservatives who don't trust popular government, they don't want the federal government in control of money because during the Civil War in Greenbacks, we had inflation. That's how we funded the Civil War. So what you have there is a belief in um, this kind of mystical power of gold and at the same time turning it over to outsiders to regulate our currency. Against that were Greenbackers who have what kind of currency we have now, simply fiat currency. You issue it as you need it. But that wasn't working, so the populists came up with an equally bad idea, 
which is we're going to have silver. And the idea of silver is we're awash in silver. There's tons of silver. So with silver, we're going to get the inflation, get away from the gold standard, but you can still argue we're going to a real metal, which has intrinsic value. So what we really have is two superstitions collide in 1896, and it's the gold standard is going to win. But immediately, once you have the gold standard or the silver standard, you have to start fiddling with it because neither one provides a currency for a modern economy. But it's a, that's lucid and brilliant, but it's important for exactly where we started about not being too presentist about yeah. history. Because yeah. right? we immerse ourselves in late 19th century documents, and it's constant, these arguments about silver versus gold. There's an argument that The Wizard of Oz, written by L. Frank Baum, is originally a populist allegory. Uh, they're not ruby slippers, they're silver slippers on a path of yeah. gold, right? It's the most famous American studies analogy, and it's, yeah. it's wonderful. It works perfectly, except it's wrong. Well, don't let that get in the way of it. Um, the home. There's a theme running through this book that you develop about the importance of the home, the domestic sphere, uh, perhaps, uh, our life. And I do want to get to, to women and gender roles as well. Can you talk more about that, about the home as what you identify as a critical theme in the late 19th century? Yeah, I mean, one of the um, techniques I have as a historian is being stupid, essentially. Um, I will go into something, and something is right in front of me. The people I'm writing about will use a word like home over and over again. They're always referring to the home. And I just skipped over it and skipped over it and skipped over it. And I thought, wait a minute. Everything here comes back to the home. What do they mean about home? And it occurred to me that really, in a deep sense, 19th century Americans are not individualists, as they're supposed to be. They're collectivists, and they're collectivists because they believe in the home and the family. When they think about the republic, it is not going to be a collection of individuals. It's a collection of homes. Frances Willard, who is probably the most brilliant politician of the late 19th century, though she never held office and could not vote, turns the Women's um, Christian Temperance Union into a home protection agency. And she uses the protection of the home to create incredible political power. The thing that happens, if you are on the side of the home, if you can be seen as protecting the home, you have a, a sort of golden currency, to use the 19th century term, will, will buy you anything. But if you are cast as an enemy of the home, Indians stop white homemakers. The big struggle in Reconstruction, are black men trying to create homes or are they a threat to the white home. The Chinese are cast as threats to the working man's home. Once you are cast as an enemy of the home, you can be written out of politics. It can be used against you and is quite effectively used against you. But if you grasp the home, then really you are at the center of the American political struggle. Class struggle, racial struggle, no matter what it is, it will all be cast in terms of American home. But does the home then become this launching pad for the reform impulse of the era? So Francis Willard is the Women's Christian yeah. Temperance Union, right? Which becomes what in that period? I mean, it's the predecessor that's going to get us to prohibition eventually. It's going to get us to prohibition, but it gets us a lot more than that. It's also about schools. It's about, and it becomes just with, not only with Willard, but women in the progressive era. What women say is, okay, we're the homemakers. We're in charge of home, but the whole country's a home. The whole country is a collection of homes. 
Therefore, how can you deny the people who are in charge of the home the political power that's necessary to make the country really a collection of homes? And women take this not by arguing that they are going to be individualists and like men, but they're women who are in charge of the home, and they turn it into a seat of political power. They become leading American reformers in the late 19th and early 20th century. They mobilize the home to great effect. Men had started out by seeing the home as confining for women. Women turn it around and make it their agency for going into the larger world. And of course, women's suffrage gets wrapped up in this as well. Because that becomes the argument for women's suffrage. How in the world, if women are in charge of the nation's values and in charge of the nation's homes, how is it they can't participate fully in politics? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, From a literary standpoint, you make William Dean Howes um, one of the many writers, perhaps his reputation has fallen with Frank Norris and some of the others. Twain's has stayed there. A sort of central figure as well in the book. Talk about William Dean Howells and why is he the sort of writer uh, of the era who best captures the tensions, the ambiguities of of the age? William Dean Howells is is useful for me because um, he starts as a liberal. I mean, he starts as a liberal in the small-l liberal sense, that he believes in autonomous individualism, he believes in competition, he believes in laissez-faire. He's a writes one of Lincoln's early campaign biographies, gets a political appointment in Venice, and comes back, and he writes constantly. He's connected both with the developing American literary milieu, with American intellectual life, but also with American politics. He knows everybody. He's related to some of them. And he keeps not only a diary, but he writes wonderful letters. And he writes columns. So I can literally start in 1866 and follow Howells through to 1896. And he has a rich family life. It's really tragic in a lot of ways. His his daughter has, was it Neurath? Neurasthenia? Neurasthenia. This is always, I always stumble over that word. Um, And so you can trace her... Problems. She starts out, she's the apple of his eye, and she's dead by the time she's in her 20s. Um, so his life can be scarred by tragedy. And at the same time, he realizes, in a way of this kind of brutal honesty, that the ideas he held at the end of the Civil War are not really working out. And he struggles to try to come to an understanding about this. He struggles politically. He struggles intellectually. And his struggles are all on the page. And it costs him a great deal. It costs him friends. Um, Mark Twain remains his great friend throughout, but many others drop away from him. And through him, I can see the agony of the age, the great hopes of the 1860s, and then the tragedies of the 1890s. But even in 1890, he remains incredibly hopeful about American democracy. And one of the things about American democracy that he says is that We've now been through the struggles of the Civil War. We've now been through the class struggle. And the one thing we can say, it hasn't been pretty, but it works. And that's the kind of place he reaches at the end of the book. But isn't there an argument that, or an anxiety, that the values of capitalism and democracy are antithetical? And that there's a tension there. Henry Adams writes a novel called Democracy. So that issue of capitalism versus democracy is rampant. Can- yeah. and, it, and it's never going to go away. Because the, the argument is, and the best way to think about this, is the tension that goes in the home itself, in something like the Homestead Act. 
The Homestead Act gives a farm to individuals, and that farm is a business. Now, that farm to earn money as a business goes against that farm as a home. Hamlin Garland, who's another forgotten author, brings this out because what it's about is the tension between his mother, who makes homes and is constantly going to be uprooted by her husband's desire to have a better farm someplace else, a more profitable farm someplace else. And so what Garland gets at is there's this tension here. If it's going to be business, if it's going to be competition, and the home, these are going to be working against each other. And they work against each other in his eyes in the tragedy of his mother, in the way that, in fact, the family begins to fall apart. And Garland writes about this very, very effectively. It's one of the things that I do in the book is a lot of these 19th century realist authors are very useful for me because they bring out the tensions that they recognize in ways that I think are identifiable to us. If we go off and read a William Dean Howe's novel now, which one would you read? You know, it's still, it's still the one that brought me back to William Dean Howe's. You should read A Hazard of New Fortunes. Sure, that's the question. And this is probably an audience, which is one of the few in the country where she'll appreciate it. You will even like the 30 or 40 pages he devotes to trying to find an apartment in New York. <laughs> um, this era... For most intellectual and cultural historians, one of the themes they often use to talk about this era is social Darwinism, right? Conflict in those kinds of ways. Is that still a useful way to think about it? Are, are the people living in late 19th century America operating out of this set of principles of struggle for survival or survival of the fittest, which, of course, Darwin never said, but becomes part of the sort of general idea to justify this sort of individualism, competition, uh, et cetera? My answer is no. I mean, one of the things is Richard Hofstetter was a great historian. And one of the things that a great historian can do is take an idea which is not a really good idea and fixate it on history. There was such a thing as social Darwinism. Most Americans had nothing to do with it. If you don't believe me, look at the accounts of Herbert Spencer, who's the great social Darwinist coming to the United States, and he's largely ignored and misunderstood. Um, When you look at Americans, their idea is not the survival of the fittest. It's not complete individual um, success. Their goal was something, it's a word that we've totally forgotten. It's a competence or a competency. Your goal in life is you make enough money that you can take care of your family, provide for yourself in old age, provide enough money to give your children a start in life, and when you have that, you're done. There are better things to do. I give an account of a Philadelphia businessman who in the 1870s um, simply stops working. He's counted his money and said, I have enough. Um, There's no point in doing this anymore. I have achieved a competency. And if you look at Carnegie, when he talks about great wealth, there's there's um, going to be a moment in that book, which we ignore, and he says, when I talk about great wealth, I'm not talking about a competence or a competency. He's talking about fortunes, which is more money than you can ever spend. But he has to make that distinction because for most Americans, still at the time, great wealth was not the goal of their striving. A competency is the goal of their striving. What they want to do is establish a home and a stable home. We could argue about some of this. I would. I like it. Because I'm thinking about Jack London, who another of the authors who we haven't mentioned. Uh, Boxing is the most popular sport of the era. And let me ask you about something that conveniently 
because you end the book in 1896, you don't have to deal with, but I think I still have to ask <laughs> you about it. Uh, and that's America abroad. I mean, that's, that's you know, American imperialism, the, the, uh, the movement of America beyond its own shores. It's coming. It's right there. It's two years beyond the end of this book. But certainly the roots, the seeds of a lot of that project must be in here. Can you talk more about American foreign relations? What, and I talk relatively little about American foreign relations here. I talk a lot about intellectual ideas. I talk a lot about the economy. I talk about trade. But I don't talk about American foreign policy. And the reason is, is that I went over this with a graduate student preparing for his exams. And he asked basically a different version of this question. How come um, American historians talk about foreign policy, but they don't ever relate it to a westward expansion? And the answer is, is westward expansion was foreign policy. The treaties with Indian peoples, all of the things that are going to be sketched out on the American mainland, including Alaska, then we leap to Hawaii, they show up in the Philippines. They're going to show up in China. It's not a big jump at all that many of the soldiers who had been there are going to be um, going to the Philippines. The Philippines is referred to as an Indian war. Um, the Filipinos are seen as Indians. So there's a lot of ways in which it's a very easy transition What's going to change is that Americans have begun to realize by the late 19th century that our internal markets are not going to be enough. We've had this constant recession, depression, boom, bust economy. And the idea is what we really need is markets abroad. And that's going to be a new element, much greater than it had been during the period I talk about. Yeah, no, but you can see the seeds of it. That's going to fulminate in 1898. Exactly. As a historian, I want to ask you some questions about sort of writing a 900-page book. Um, And this is an amazing series, uh, The Oxford History of the United States. One of the things that struck me reading this, and those of you who read it, I think, or or have already read it, is you have this eye for the telling detail, the telling fact. Um, And and part of me wants to know where you got some of this stuff from. So, for example, (laughs) in 1870, Americans consumed 131 pounds of pork per capita, compared to 62 pounds of beef. In 1900, they consumed 83 pounds of pork to 78 pounds of beef. And this leads to a whole discussion of the corporatization of the cowboy and the creation of cattle industries. I mean, it's fascinating, but it's not, I think most of us would agree, typically what we get in the sort of political social histories that we read. So I applaud you for it, and it runs throughout the book, but I'm sort of interested in you as a historian how you... um, sort of find this stuff out and, and integrate it into the narrative? I mean, I mean, many things I write about is I'm an environmental historian. Um, and one of the things that fascinates me is the sort of nitty-gritty of American life, what people wore, what they ate, what they did. And it's not just me. Other environmental historians do it. So starting with my colleague Bill Cronin and a bunch of other people, we gravitate to slaughterhouses. Um, you wonder, where did this stuff go? And there's been this nation where Americans were always beef eaters. Well, actually, we've never really been beef eaters. We've been pork eaters. Um, and that continued into the 20th century. So then be- people began to measure it. How much pork did they produce? You divide it by per capita. This is what you get. And that's where I began to get these statistics. I didn't make them up. I didn't actually count the pigs in the population. <laughs> But it's been done, done for me. So environmental historians have explored a lot of it. I could not write a book like this without the huge um, attention to detail that other American historians have had. Um, it's scary because at one point, even when I was an undergraduate, or maybe it was in graduate school, 
One of my professors pointed out that if this kept up, there'd probably be an American history professor for every 10 minutes of American history. And we never quite reached that, but there are a lot of us. Right, right. But that's always the challenge, yeah. right, in this kind of a creative synthesis. So I always enjoyed Brian Lamb when he interviewed authors. He asked them about the mechanics of writing a book like this. So I'd like to take a few minutes to give you a chance to do that. Because I can't imagine writing a 900-page book. So sort of what is... I couldn't either. <laughs> yeah, but you did it. You did it, and it's wonderful. So, so, I mean, how do you do it? How did you do it? Um, what is your process as a writer? You know, one of, the, one of the things I had is a terrific piece of advice, and I ended up getting it from a colleague at Stanford. And she said, um, who's your Dilbert? Who's the person who essentially is going to watch all this stuff and see inside things which are going to give you a, ca- a way of looking at it? And that became William Dean Howells. He became my Dilbert. I struggled around, but I found Howells. The other thing is, how do I turn this into a story? What's the arc of the story? Because otherwise, it becomes there's so much information, it's just one thing after another. And so one of the things you have to do is I decided to cast it as a tragedy. Not a complete tragedy, but it's a tragedy. People who had, who had just won a bloody war, and now thought they could remake the country and end up in a place they never, ever imagined. And my story is, how did this happen? How did it get this way? How is it that despite our best intentions, and how is it despite the fact that we might seem to control all the levers of power around us, the world has ideas of its own. The world is an incredibly complicated place. And so that threw me into the struggles um, of the late 19th century, which, as I've said, are very similar to some of the struggles we've had now, though the people are very, very different. Yeah, yeah. Well, and clearly, I mean, your bibliography shows this is where all those smaller studies done by so many scholars all over the place become dissertations and narrow monographs. You, you couldn't do a book like this no, without I can't. that. And, and the other thing I do is that, and again, we were, we've talked about this before, just the Internet is good and the Internet's bad. I'll talk about the good Internet now. Um, the good Internet is, is what were people thinking at the time, particularly what are American intellectuals and educated Americans, what are they reading? I could go to the Century magazine, and I could simply go month by month and read what they were reading. Um, that would have been very hard to do 10 or 15 years ago. I would have to go to a bunch of libraries to do it, and the, and the magazines would have fallen apart in my hands. But now I can go through and read it, and it was... It kept me in touch that I didn't think, okay, this is just like me. No, these are people thinking very differently than me. And that was incredibly useful. And that allows me to tell a story about the strangeness of the past. I would not be a historian if I was not utterly preoccupied about the strangeness of the past. It's a place where you can find things out that you can't find out in the contemporary world. That's why I go there. And that's what's always revealed. Before we turn to some questions from the audience, um, one of the culminating moments here is, is the Columbian Exposition, also known as White City, uh, in Chicago, 1893. Can you talk about that? I mean, it's such a pivotal event. In At the time, it was recognized as such. I forget the statistic. You have it in here. You probably know off the top of your head. The percentage of Americans who traveled to visit this exposition uh, is, is extraordinary. And it's also a moment that allows us to chart something of the technological, industrial transformation of America in this era. I mean, it's hard to believe how proud Americans were of Chicago in 1893, in the white city. And I think the number, I could be wrong, I'd have to check my own book, 
but I think more people visited than the population of the United States. Yeah. So it's a huge number of people come through. And they see it as two things. First of all, they see it as they want to beat Paris. And as they see it, they did beat Paris. Paris had the Eiffel Tower, but we had that giant Ferris wheel. And we also had the white city. There's this idea, which is hard for us to imagine now, the Field Museum's about all that's left of it. This is going to be a show of what the future America is going to look like. The future America is going to be a common culture. We're all going to be together, and it's going to be a high culture. This is the best the country can present. And we do it. And it's not just American common people. It's not just the average citizen. American intellectuals and artists are in love with this place. It's hard to find anybody except Louis Sullivan who says a bad thing about it. Um, But at the same time, it's a mirage. 1893 is when the United States is about to enter the Great Depression before the Great Depression of the 1930s. Within a year, much of the white city will be burned down. Much of Chicago will be witnessed fighting in the streets. It is going to be a sign of the divisions of the country, the lack of a common culture, the inability to solve the problems. But for that moment, that shining moment in 1893, this is it. We've arrived at the future. And it's this wondrous moment, which even now when I go back and read about it, my problem is I know what's going to happen in six months. They don't. Exactly. Um, Contingency. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a battle, isn't there, between Westinghouse and Edison yeah. over electrification. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let, let, let's turn to a, f- a few questions from audience members, um, which will take us back over the arc, I think, of this story in interesting kinds of ways. Uh, one person asks, uh, would keeping the army in the South to enforce Reconstruction have altered the course of Southern politics? How? The, the you, we- you're lucky that person wasn't interviewing you today. <laughs> It's a very good question, but that's one I've thought about a great deal. And the way it would have is you have to remember in 1865, 1866, there's a unionist majority in the South. It's made up of carpetbaggers, scalawags, and black voters. They will win elections if you can have fair votes. Protecting the polls would have allowed this to coalesce and would have had a kind of interest group in Republican politics emerging in the South. It takes a long time to kill the Republican Party in the South. It won't really be killed off until 1874, 1875, and in places in Virginia into the 1870s, 1880s. There was a real resilience there, but what it can't stand against is this constant terror. It can't stand against the slaughter of voters coming to the polls, the kinds of attacks on black homes, Um, the kinds of lynchings that take place. This is the kind of thing the troops could have done it. Would it, am I certain that it would have worked? I can't be certain about anything. I'm a historian. But what I can be certain about is it would have had a much better chance if, in fact, that had been allowed to happen. Could terrorists be suppressed? Yes, we know they could. They're suppressed in Arkansas. They're suppressed in North Carolina. They're suppressed in um, South Carolina. When force is brought against them, it works. Well, and, and most importantly, it would have prevented the rapidity with which Southern Democrats regained political yeah. power, right? And that's, that's the key. Um, how- and, and, and initially, there are Southern Democrats who are willing to compromise. They said, we have just lost this war. This will be a disaster if we enter into a long guerrilla war. It's better for us and them to cut the best deal we can. But by, um, after that, it's going to be the straight white line, as it's called, that they're going to be people you, you basically, it's white against black. 
and it becomes a racial politics. Uh, another question here, which is also a fantastic counterfactual, which is always an interesting technique to use. We use it both in mm-hmm. the classroom to get students to think about what might have happened. In his Civil War series, Ken Burns talked about how the country changed after the war. Would that have happened if the labor immigration movement did not occur in the 1880s? If the United States had not become such a heavily immigrant nation, um, probably it would not have occurred in the same way, but it's hard for me to see how we wouldn't have become an immigrant nation. Um, we're an immigrant nation already by the 1850s, 1860s. What's changing is the component. Right. By 1860s, 1870s, it's largely Irish, German, then Scandinavian. By the 1880s, 1890s, it becomes Eastern and Southern European. Um, so those are coming in. And remember, the United States could not develop the way as quickly as it did without immigrants. The United States wants immigrants. It needs immigrants to go west. And we think of the west as not being immigrant. The west is the most heavily immigrant part of the United States. Its percentages are higher than Massachusetts and New York. We need immigrants because that, in fact, becomes our, work, our labor force in the factories. It's an immigrant labor force. It's hard to see the modern United States emerging without it. And the pressure for this is so great um, that the immigrants are going to come in. And it's, and it's the American identity at the time. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is people my age grew up in the most atypical time in American history. With immigration restriction in the 1920s, I grew up, my parents are immigrants, my grandparents are immigrants, but I knew very few immigrants. By the time I'm reaching adulthood in the 1960s and 1970s, it's going to be an immigrant nation again. But that time in between, which people my age remember as wildly, as typical, the United States doesn't have that many immigrants, is wildly atypical. The rest of the time, the United States has been a heavily immigrant nation. Someone like me, was concerned about your argument that the standard of living went down. So I want to give you another shot at this. Did not industrial progress, this person asked, in the 1880 to 1890 help standards of living? Well, see, this is the problem. Is how do you measure standards of living? Does the United States production increase? Unarguably so. But this is an economy which is based on producer goods. We produce steel. We produce um, railroad engines. You know, we're producing a huge amount of infrastructure to expand across the country. We're building up the big cities. But the question is, does that transfer, translate into a better way of life for most people? So one of the problems is taking these gross statistics of productivity, which are clearly there, and saying that people's lives improve. But here's where economic statistics fail us. We simply do not have good statistics by which we can measure what real incomes were and what people are consuming. So we go to the second tier of statistics about, that I quoted to you. And my argument is quite simply, if standards of living are improving, how in the world do we say that this is happening to people? How do people get shorter? How do people, you should have greater nutrition, better housing. This should not happen. Why are your children dying in such numbers? This is not translating. So I'm not arguing that it's an industrial economy. This is incredibly productive, but it's the same argument we hear today. It's not that our economy can't boom. Does it translate into a better life for most people in the country? That's the argument. Well, here's another question that gets at the question of, if not changing standards of living, improvement in terms of power and social mobility. So someone asks, 
How did the era of Reconstruction and the Gilded Age transform the inherent power structure of the nation? Did women, people of color, and other marginalized groups at the time see an advancement, an improvement in their, in their status? It, you have to single out particular groups. Um, did freed people in the beginning? Certainly freed people, once you're out of slavery, there's no argument. You know, your, your condition is improved, no matter what happens to you after that. But was, were black people better off in 1896 than they were in 1870? Probably not. They're being disenfranchised, forced back down into poverty. They become, along with Indians, the poorest groups in the United States. Did women's condition improve? Definitely. Improves gradually, not as fast as women wanted it to. But certainly women are going to be better off as the, as the course goes on. Chinese, they're going to be restricted out. A lot of this stuff is that you simply can't take a single group and have them stand in for the whole American population. That becomes the argument that people are not one, they're many. And once you have the people are not one, they're many, then you have some things help some people, some things help others, which helps you explain why the country is so divided, why there is such a battle going on. It is not a single thing happening, and people see others' gains as their loss. And by and large, I buy into the people don't always, but are pretty good judges of their own self-interest. And so when they're complaining things are getting worse, I have to take them seriously. Were there any robber barons or members of their class who recognized that it was in their interest to help wage earners in the lower classes? Um, in principle, yes. In practice, no. Um, because the problem you have to realize is this is an incredibly... Co- competitive economy. And that once you begin, they try to control production, they try to make deals with each other, and the problem is, is that monopolists and other companies will get together, will hold up wages, but we're also going to agree on certain prices and we're going to agree on production controls, but they cheat all the time. And once you cheat all the time, and then it becomes a race to the bottom. We can't agree among ourselves, so what we have to do is make up these costs someplace, and we'll make them up on wages. We either cut wages or we replace them with machinery. This becomes mechanization. And so one of the things they'll recognize that this is causing great discontent, but at the same time they see it, at the end of the day, this is whether my company survives or not. One of, one of the odd things about this is that it's an incredibly competitive economy in which people are going to be denounced for being monopolists. And both of the things are true. There's... Two more questions. I think we have time, um, or, or we'll go quickly with these questions. There's an interesting question here about corporate personhood. Right? The corporation becomes a person in Zero. Can you speak quickly about the sort of implications of that? Yeah, the, the implications are vast, but it doesn't happen during my period, as I found out. There we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, there we go. Uh, but they are vast, and the question was over the battle over wage slavery and individual personhood. Um, to move away, someone asks the question, who are your favorite American historians? And I'm going to add to that, uh, and writers, because we talk a lot about historians and writers. Okay. Um, my favorite American historians right now. I mean, it, this is hard because sometimes I'm going to be naming friends. Yeah, they may be in the room, so yeah. be careful. Um, you know, one of them would certainly have to be William Cronin, um, who's a Western historian, who's wrote Nature's Metropolis, who would be historian I, I, I greatly admire. Um, another one, um, I'm pretty sure is not in the room, is Eric Foner, um, 
Who, who's been in this room many times. Yeah, so, yeah. Who, who is the sort of dean of American historians, his ability to, to write about a particular period but always come up with something new about it. Um, in terms of, I could go on to others, but in terms of American writers, um, I have come, Howells, of course, but really the person who I enjoyed when I couldn't make him the central character, but he's a marginal character, is Mark Twain. Uh-huh. Um, that it's hard to believe a person who's been dead as long as Mark Twain, I can open a page and laugh out loud as often as I do. Um, and that for the sort of pithy comment and for the combination of which is for a writer particularly encouraging, the ability to write great books and truly god-awful books at the same time can only encourage somebody to say, well, that wasn't so good, but next time I'm going to do better. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.